All right, we are back. We were talking about jerk politicians. We have a whole lot of them here in the uh, greater Sacramento-Davis area. We are, after all, the state capital. And one of our bigger jerks is setting out to ruin a perfectly nice neighborhood in Sacramento, the one I live in, by putting an ill-advised development in a little cubbyhole and routing the traffic to it right down our quiet streets. This is a topic we're going to continue to uh, follow in the weeks and months to come as this, uh, as this, what I think is going to be disaster, slowly unfolds. But I would like to quote from uh, an essay from one of the local groups opposing this effort by Phil Angelides, which is from the group called East Sacramento Preservation. And uh, the piece is by Pat Lynch, who heads the group. And to quote from it, the EIR, referring, of course, to the Environmental Impact Report, Said Pat Lynch, it's as big as a Bible and every bit as mystical. Some think it means errors implanted relentlessly. It's commissioned by developers to help them sail through a largely ceremonial city process that purports to assess the worth of their projects. The first stage of the EIR process is the NOP, Notice of Preparation. The NOP is supposed to give you a chance to raise concerns that will be routinely dismissed by the developer and his acolytes. Add an E to NOP and you have NOPE, which is the answer you'll get to your requests and allegations. For example, some of us asked the developer of the proposed McKinley Village, McVillage is what it's referred to locally, to add two-way car access to the Alhambra Street bike pedestrian exit that would relieve our streets from traffic invasion. So the developer, not economically feasible, Later, after many more voices were added to this request, he changed his answer to not technically feasible. Uh-huh. What before was too expensive has now become physically impossible. Whosoever seriously believes this must change the N in nope to a D for dope because you've become one. After this comes the DEIR, or Draft Environmental Impact Report, more aptly called the DAFT EIR. Anyway, the current McVillage daft EIR is riddled with illogic and absurdities, but quoted with stubborn reverence as truth. For the developer, it's holy writ. Let's look at one of the proclamations they expect us to accept by faith alone. It's that a traffic study, quote-unquote, has determined that 3,500 more cars a day invading quiet East Sacramento streets will be of, quote, insignificant impact, unquote. But this traffic quote-unquote study is a driver-centric sham that counted only the number of times a driver pauses. It doesn't study or even consider the impact auto traffic has on residents, exhaust pollution, pedestrian safety risks, and the inevitable erosion of neighborhood character. Who composes the EIRs that smooth the way for injurious projects? In the present case, it is Dudek, a consulting firm hired by the developer. Dudek says it stays, quote, focused on moving projects methodically through planning, analysis, development, and implementation, unquote. Pro-project, paid for by the developer, avowedly on his side, these hired high priests write the EIR. How, in view of this, can any sane person regard that document as a tome of objectivity? But people do. This includes people who should know better at the Sacramento News and Review. Not to mention the Sacramento Bee, noted Pat Lynch. Naturally, the developer quotes it chapter and verse. Some city council's members say they believe it. 
Others believe it because they want to believe it. Never mind that it is a preposterous concoction of falsehoods. Believers have faith so as to move mountains or blast holes in your levee and funnel traffic down your street. You know, I like this piece. I'm going to keep quoting from it here. Noted Pat Lynch, in keeping with a ritualistic pretense at democracy, we are permitted to comment on the daft EIR, and our objections and other heresies will be noted in the sacred text of the final document. But noted does not mean ameliorated. Most of our comments will be dismissed with technical verbiage employed to disguise magical thinking. And what of those neighbors who object to the process itself, to its stack-decked unfairness and slippery relationship with truth? Will they be blessed with more balanced and accurate procedures in the future? No. Nor will their elected representatives heed them and mend the process. Why? Because, behold, neighbors giveth not great sums to their representatives. You have only to look at the public records to see that developers make donations of significant impact to city politicians. I would note, however, that when uh, Steve Cohn, who appears to be going along with this proposal by Phil Angelides, uh, had a meeting in McKinley Park a few nights ago with the two of them there, there was a huge turning out of the public to express their dissatisfaction with this scheme. So we shall see. The word I've been leaked is this is a done deal, but I hope not. You know, I like that essay, but I also like the one that recently appeared in a special to the Bible by Barbara Berrigan Paria, talking about better solutions for managing California's water. In a year where California is obviously running out of water, it would seem a bad time to propose that they stick tunnels in the delta and suck more water out for the benefit of uh, water interests. But our governor, Jerry Brown, is all about constructing these twin tunnels to transfer water around the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, noted Barbara Berrigan Perea. During the current drought, the public will hear a lot about water management in California. Unfortunately, Californians are being presented with a false dichotomy, that our water problems are about fish versus people. It's what large corporate agribusiness interests from the Westside Water District and Kern County Water Agency have been pushing on the public since 2009. While we agree with these opposing groups that we have a water management problem that is harming everyday people, the facts show that the causes and solutions are different from what they claim. Over the past 10 years, wetlands and Kern have taken more water from the Delta on an annual average basis than the L.A. Metropolitan Water District and the Santa Clara Valley Water District combined, even though tens of millions of people use water in these urban districts. Yet, Westlands and Kern County growers contribute less than 0.3% to the state's annual GDP. And the farm worker communities found within these water districts suffer from high unemployment rates, even when there's plenty of water flowing through the system. Noted Berrigan Perea, recently Metropolitan Water District's Jeff Nightlinger so the district has enough water in storage to get through the next two to three years if this dry period should continue. So why has Governor Jerry Brown declared a drought? And why are the groups who've been pushing for construction of twin tunnels, which will cost ratepayers and taxpayers more than $60 billion with interest and operational costs, why are they calling to take even more water from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta? Well, notes the author of the Brown administration most recently and the Department of Water Resources historically have failed to manage California's finite water supply during dry periods. 
even though California has historically experienced drought over a third of the time. As Bill Jennings with the California Sport Fishing Protection Alliance explains, we entered 2013 with Shasta, Oroville, and Folsom Reservoirs at 115, 113, and 121% of historical average storage. In April, they were still at 101, 108, and 96% of average. With no rainfall and little snowpack, the Department of Water Resources and the Bureau of Reclamation notified their contractors that water deliveries would be reduced. But they didn't reduce water deliveries. Instead, they actually exported 835,000 acre-feet more water than they said they would be able to deliver. Why did this happen? Well, says Barragan Perea, once again, state water officials capitulated to the demands of leaders from Westlands and Kern to support their unsustainable agricultural practices. The failure to carry over storage and to plan for dry conditions, which are a regular part of California's climate, can only be described as gross mismanagement by water officials. She goes on to note in way of solutions that uh, we do need to retire drainage-impaired agricultural lands on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley. This will ultimately be cheaper than building the twin tunnels, and it will end the cycle of poor water management decisions made by state officials to enrich a few hundred corporate agribusinesses. Well, we think that uh, Barbara Berrigan Perea is onto something here. She's the executive director of Restore the Delta, a grassroots group which includes Delta residents, business leaders, farmers, fishermen, and environmentalists. We are definitely going to continue to follow the water issue because it is, without a doubt, one of California's most uh, contentious political issues. And an area around which there's just, just an amazing amount of smoke screens. And a couple items in the forum section of the Sacramento Bee last Sunday, we saw water being talked about, a piece by Marcos Kulinakis, a special to the Bee. Kulinakis was described in the piece as a research fellow at Central European University, currently a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Um, I kind of think he's also the son-in-law of uh, noted real estate developer Angelo Sakopoulos. Kulinakis goes off to talk about, uh, well, water situations and how dire it is around the world, which I guess explains the sub-headline in the B, which is that California is in the middle of a drought, but it's a wet wonderland from a global perspective. Yeah, I guess it's a virtual rainforest if you compare it to the empty quarter of Saudi Arabia. Another sub-headline for Kulinakis' piece is, we have plenty if we improve management. Sure. And if we improve management and have plenty, we can just keep developing and developing and developing and developing here in California, which is how you make a lot of money if you're a real estate developer. Kulinakis notes that when I arrived in Sacramento at the start of the 21st century, our city had no meters and water was generally considered both flowing and free. And, of course, Dan Moraine goes off on this whole thing about how long ago, back in 1920s, somebody rec- recommended that we put water meters here in Sacramento. And disgraceful, we never got around to this until now. And he laments how much more money it's costing now to, to meter the water than it would have been if we'd put the meters in a long time ago. Dan Moraine also notes that our per capita water use in Sacramento has fallen from 279 gallons per person in the mid-1990s to just 218 gallons a day. You know, I hope the editors of the beat read their own opinion pieces like the ones by Barbara 
Berrigan Perea that kind of explains what's really going on here. Our reservoirs are not going dry because we don't have water meters in Sacramento's urban area. The problem lies with agribusiness interests and real estate developers. And did we mention the oil companies, by the way? You know that they like to ship potable water down the San Joaquin Valley because oil interests in Kern County don't have to replace their injectors when they send steam down to the ground to pump the oil out more freely. Yeah, it, it's a cost savings to them not to have their injectors fouled so often when they use water that's kind of hard and has a lot of calcium in it. Better to use drinking water. Oh, this topic makes me hot. I, I better get off of it. And I was tempted to move on to the issue of our downtown arena, but that'll just that'll just set me off. We're, we'll postpone that one. Let's instead talk about some history we've been putting off on the show. We mentioned how the how we should talk about the Dreyfus affair. And uh, today's the day. While coming back from the Caribbean, I encountered a copy of the International New York Times, which used to be the International Herald Tribune because it was part Washington Post, part New York Times. Sadly, the Post, I guess, dropped out of this uh, international paper, which is something I always craved getting a copy of when went overseas. But it's uh, still a good publication, even though it's all New York Times. And uh, the piece I read while coming back from the Caribbean by Robert Harris was about Dreyfus. To quote from it, George Picard died 100 years ago this Saturday. To which the response from most quarters is likely to be, George who? Even in his native France, his centenary is passing largely unremarked. Yet in the days of Queen Victoria and Theodore Roosevelt, Picard was a figure of global controversy, revered and reviled in equal measure as the world's most famous whistleblower. Unlike his 21st century counterparts Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden, Picard was neither a disaffected nor junior figure in the organization he was to expose. On the contrary, in October of 1894, he was a brilliant rising army officer. One of the stepping stones to advancement had been a professorship at the École Supérieure de Guerre, and one of the officer cadets he had taught there was a Jewish artillery captain, Alfred Dreyfus. Noted Robert Harris, Picard, like many of his contemporaries, was casually anti-Semitic. It came as no surprise to him when Dreyfus, the only Jew in the general staff, was suspected of passing secret intelligence to the Germans. It was Picard who provided a sample of Dreyfus's handwriting to the investigators, and when expert analysts seemed to confirm Dreyfus's guilt, it was Picard who met his unsuspected former pupil in the Ministry of War so he could be quietly bundled off to prison. The piece notes that Picard attended Dreyfus's court-martial as an official observer. When he was told that a file of intelligence evidence existed, conclusively proving Dreyfus's guilt, Picard supported the decision to show it in secret to the judges, and that file clinched Dreyfus's conviction. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, and on January 5, 1895, before a crowd of 20,000 shouting, Death to the Jew, Dreyfus had his sword broken and the insignia of rank torn from his uniform. In March, Dreyfus was transported to Devil's Island off the South American coast. Picard, meanwhile, prospered. Six months later, at age 40, he was made the youngest colonel in the French army, and he was put in charge of a tiny intelligence unit known as the Statistical Section. That's the one that had compiled the evidence against Dreyfus. As it would turn out, their prize agent was a cleaning lady at the German embassy 
who supplied the contents of a waste paper basket of the military attaché. She had been the source of the note that an expert had concluded was in Dreyfus's hand. Nine months into Picard's tenure, the cleaning lady turned over a document that had been torn into fragments. Glued back together, it was found to be a telegram which revealed that the German attaché was receiving intelligence from a serving French officer, Major Charles Esterhazy. Picard immediately put Esterhazy under surveillance, and he turned out to be the classic profile for a spy. He was a drunkard, a gambler, heavily indebted, and leading a double life with a prostitute. Sitting in his office, Picard would compare Esterhazy's letter with the note that had convicted Dreyfus. He testified later, I was terrified. The true writings were not similar. They were identical. The next day, he showed them to the handwriting expert, Alphonse Bertillon, whose evidence had helped convict Dreyfus. For his part, Bertillon confirmed Esterhazy's writing was a perfect match, but he saw no reason to revise his original judgment, saying, it merely shows the Jews have trained someone else to write using the Dreyfus system. Picard then probed the secret file that he'd been assured uh, proved Dreyfus's guilt and uh, found to his amazement that there was nothing there. He said, indeed, such scant evidence as we had had plainly been fabricated. Picard then took his discovery to the chief of the French general staff, General Raoul de Beausdefre, and to the overall head of military intelligence, General Charles Arthur Gonse. Their reaction appalled him. He was told to avoid any avenues of inquiry that might lead to reopening of the Dreyfus case. What does it matter to you, demanded Gonze, if one Jew stays on Devil's Island? Well, replied Picard, because he's innocent. When he pressed on with his investigation to the irritation of his superiors, he was relieved of his duties, and by the spring of 1897, Picard was in exile, transferred to a native regiment in Tunisia, on what amounted to be a near-suicidal mission into the southern Sahara. It was then that Picard, after 25 years of army service, realized he had no alternative but to break ranks. He passed his evidence against Esterhazy to his senior politician, who was the vice president of the Senate, Auguste Schurer Kestner. Then, at the end of 1897, he provided Emil Zola with the information that enabled the novelist to write his celebrated expose of the fair, Jacques. Picard's reward was to be dismissed from the army, framed as a forger, and locked up in solitary confinement for more than a year. Noted the piece by Robert Harris, it was not until 1906 that justice was finally done. Dreyfus's conviction was quashed, and Picard was restored to the army with the rank of brigadier general. That fall, when his friend and fellow Dreyfusard, George Clemenceau, who was, by the way, the owner of the newspaper that published Jacques, became prime minister, he made Picard Minister of War, a post he held for three years. As it happened, Picard was to die in January of 1914, six months before the outbreak of the First World War, after suffering a, a riding accident. He was 59. Noted the piece by Robert Harris. He had no family to preserve his memory. He was a bachelor with a succession of married mistresses. He left no children. A large section of the army never forgave him for betraying his comrades. And some of Dreyfus's supporters continued to accuse him of his initial anti-Semitism. He was described as an awkward figure in death as well as in life and slipped through the cracks of history. And yet, the injustices against which he fought so courageously, the inherent unreliability of secret courts and of secret evidence, the dangers of rogue intelligence agencies becoming laws unto themselves, 
the instinctive response of government and national security organizations to cover up their mistakes, the easy flourishing of, quote, national security, unquote, to stifle democratic scrutiny, all these continue. Noted French Prime Minister George Clemenceau, Dreyfus was the victim, but Picard was the hero. And notes Robert Harris, on this day, he deserves to be remembered. Indeed, he does, and we're pleased to do so here on this program. And on that note, I think we should take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got uh, plenty more in segment three, so stick around. <laughs> 